Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week, we're talking about how our machines see us and how they don't see us and what that means for our civil rights and the future of our society. So we live in a world right now that would have been unthinkable even a few decades ago. Advances in fields like biometric computation and artificial intelligence have given rise to a world of incredible convenience. You're probably experiencing it right now, listening to this podcast on a device in your pocket or in your car. There's a vast storehouse of knowledge available to us all with a touch or a whisper. And this technology not only speaks to us, but it also seems to know us. But while our technologies have the sheen of something very new, they contain something very old. The racism, sexism, and other discrimination that has long been part of our history. The machines we have made don't just suffer from the ills of our society, they threaten to perpetuate them. And as this technology becomes more and more ubiquitous and invasive, it may become a threat to our civil rights. That's the argument being made by Coded Bias, the latest documentary from award-winning filmmaker Shalini Kantaya. The documentary tells the story of this moment we are in through the researchers and activists who are working to understand the technology and doing whatever they can to sound the alarm about a future where our prejudices are hardwired into the technologies that run the world and where our freedoms are severely limited. The film premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and it later ran on PBS as a part of the Independent Lens series. Then it got a really big signal boost earlier this month when Coded Bias was picked up for distribution by Netflix. Shalini had just gotten news of this when she sat down with me for Crosscut's monthly event series, At Large, late last month. She was joined by one of the expert voices from the documentary, Meredith Broussard, who, among many other things, is the author of Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. So... If you haven't seen the documentary yet, I encourage you to do so. And I think after hearing this conversation, you're going to want to. This is sobering stuff, but it's also just deeply interesting. It will change the way you think about the everyday conveniences you enjoy. And I think it will also give you some hope that our future is still in our hands. As always, you can email us at talks at crosscut.com. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I know I did. Okay, on with the show. I want to talk about surveillance to start. And at one point in this film, one of the subjects, Silky Carlo from the organization Big Brother Watch in the UK, pulls out a copy of 1984, which of course is George Orwell's dystopian novel about a place where surveillance is all-encompassing. And she reads a passage, and I, I wanted to read it here as kind of a setup for our conversation. You had to live, did live, in habit that became instinct in the assumption that every sound you made was overheard, and except in darkness, every movement scrutinized. Then she notes that when she read that book in school, the idea of widespread surveillance was indeed fiction, 
but that now the possibility at least is a reality. So I wanted to start off by asking, how far are we on the path to George Orwell's vision? And how far are we from the point of no return? Oh, that is such a fantastic question. And you've just made my night by starting the night with Orwell, um, the book that I, I read when I was 16 and uh, essentially changed my life. I think when I when I was 16 and read that book, it, it blew my world open. And I think Silky Carlo says it right when she said, you know, when we read this as children, we thought this is a world that could never be. And now we're so increasingly living in that 1984 reality. And I think, um, you know, I didn't really feel connected when I started making this film because I think uh, these issues are often talked about with the word privacy. And it's it's a word that I sort of don't relate to. It, it feels like it has to do with privacy rights. And if, if you don't have anything to hide, you shouldn't worry about your privacy. And I think the word that I more identify with that I think is more accurate for the age that we're living in is an age of invasive surveillance. And um, I think that we are living in an age where um, states, as, as Ravi Nayak says in the, in the film, states have wanted this kind of um, information about citizens for a long time. And we as a society have begun to offer that up. And as democracies, um, we have essentially picked up the tools of authoritarian states uh, without any democratic rules in place about how these technologies should be used without any guardrails in place. And I, and I think we're much closer to uh, 1984 than um, we would like to be. I think the science fiction and documentary is, is, is sort of a, a reality that's closer than is comfortable. Hmm. You know, another thing that, that Sylvie says is that surveillance is affecting how we develop as humans, which I, I think is, is interesting to just think about the, 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 the sort of warping, shaping effect that it may have. Meredith, how is it changing our humanity? Well, I feel really fortunate to be uh, one of the uh, one of the last generation to grow up before the internet, right? So all the stupid things that I did when I was a kid are not preserved in, you know, in social media in Amber. Uh, and I'm really grateful for that because I want to believe in the possibility of change. I want people to be able to do stupid stuff when they're kids and realize that it's stupid and, you know, recover from a mistake and grow. And if we have this idea of invasive surveillance and we have this idea that everything has to be tracked all of the time, we're not leaving people room to grow and change. Uh, and I think one of the really powerful things about this film and about Joy's work is that it, it gives you this really visceral understanding of what's going wrong with algorithmic decision-making and also gives you the hopeful idea that it's not too late. So one of the things I always say is that we should be judicious about our use of technology. Uh, we should think about using the right tool for the task. And sometimes that tool is a computer and sometimes it's not. And it's okay to say no to technology. 
So Meredith, I, want, I wanted to ask you another question. I mean, taking off from that, and, and really the point of this documentary, I think, is that this technology not only impacts us, but it impacts us all differently. And the, the main character who, or who I would call the main character, I think is the through line here and kind of the heart and soul of this, of this work is uh, Joy Bulamwini, whose work at the MIT Media Lab has shown that biometric technologies driven by AR discriminating against people who are not white and especially people who are not white men. And I was hoping that you could, for the viewers who maybe have not seen the documentary yet, uh, explain to us why that's the case. Why does AI see gender and race differently? Joy's work was really groundbreaking in that uh, it was the first time that uh, kind of the mass audience realized that there are big problems with these uh, facial recognition systems, with the AI that powers facial recognition systems. Uh, the systems are better at recognizing men than women. They're better at recognizing light skin than dark skin. And they do not include trans or non-binary folks at all. Uh, trans and non-binary folks are invisible to facial recognition systems. Uh, and so it brings up this question of who gets recognized as human by these systems. Now, the problem is that these systems replicate the bias that exists in the world. One of the things that we do as humans is when we make technological systems, we embed our unconscious biases in those systems. And we all have unconscious bias and we're all trying to be better people every day. You know, we don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm gonna go oppress people. That's not what developers do. But you can't see your unconscious bias because it's unconscious, right? So when we have homogeneous groups of people creating technology, the technology gets the collective blind spots of the group that is making the technology. And we can look at the composition of Silicon Valley and we can see that it's largely white and male. Silicon Valley has had a diversity problem since its inception. They have never put in the work to change it. Uh, they are not now currently putting in the work to change it. And it is in certain sense unsurprising that they are making a technology that is deeply flawed. Joy's work kind of brings to the surface all of these flaws, all of these tensions, all of these longstanding failings of Silicon Valley and the failings of the technology that is created by two narrow groups of people. So there's something very interesting about this documentary. Um, uh, Shalini, I, you know, I, and I have a question about it. It's kind of a craft question, I guess, or about, you know, a making of question. Um, so as Meredith pointed out, um, AI is engineered to favor those who created it. And that is white men, as the documentary really um, explains uh, uh, very clearly. Yet, so many of the sources, almost all of the sources that you rely on in this documentary are women um, or at the very are, are not white men. And I thought that that was interesting because and, and I guess my question as I was watching it is, was that an intentional choice or are the people who are doing this work that you are reporting on um, 
mostly not the people who are represented within the systems and organizations that really um, build and develop and distribute this technology. Well, I, I appreciate the question. I, I will say when I started making this film, I didn't know uh, what a revolutionary act it would be <laughs> to have a film about future uh, leaning technologies that centered the voices of women. We're so accustomed to seeing films that, about technology that are mostly men and mostly white that we often don't even question it when we see it. And I think um, for me, I am a filmmaker who is conscientious about whose voices I amplify. I, I am someone who, who is very thoughtful about the decisions I make about who I label as experts. Um, that being said, I didn't set out to make a film that would be predominantly women and predominantly people of color. Uh, it was actually the research, and I, and I do have a rigorous process of research when I make films, um, that kept leading me back to um, the brilliant and badass voices in the film, including um, present company Meredith Broussard. And what I realized is that the people who are leading the fight against bias and for more ethics and artificial intelligence are actually women, are people of color, are LGBTQ, are religious minorities. And what I think is common um, to the cast is not only are they um, uh, likely the smartest group of human beings that I've ever been in the company of. I think there's seven or eight PhDs in the film. I, I think Kathy O'Neill once um, tried to explain to me how she knitted the equation for pi into a sweater. <laughs> um, I only really get half of what they say, and I think half is a lot. Um, but they have advanced degrees in data science and mathematics. But I think also um, we're outsiders, we're misfits, we're marginalized in some sense. Um, had an experience uh, where, their, where their experience and was not centered. And that allowed them to give us, to shine a light into some of the unconscious bias of Silicon Valley. And so it's been my experience in the making of the film that the, that the um, group of people that the demographic of people represented in coded bias is actually quite representative of who's leading the fight for ethics in AI. And, and Meredith, I mean, you're a part of this community. So can you, can you describe the community for us? I mean, what, um, is it, is it, is it close knit? I mean, uh, you know, I know that enjoy, uh, has created the, um, algorithm, Justice League, which is a part of this film. And uh, are you a member of the AJ, AJL? And uh, I am. I am a proud member of the Algorithmic Justice League. Um, I took their Safe Face pledge uh, when it came out a few years ago, and they have a really exciting new initiative going on um, about finding, uh, proactively finding the problems in artificial intelligence systems. Uh, the community, when I started, uh, when I started working on AFX, the community was pretty small. Uh, and I feel really, really grateful that the community has blossomed as much as it has. Um, Kathy and I, I, I mean, Kathy and I were friends before the film, like 
all of us uh, are friends and colleagues who uh, who work who appeared in the film. Uh, so Shalini did a really amazing job of uh, of finding the community and elevating voices from it. Uh, and of course, we are all immensely, immensely uh, proud of Joy and uh, supportive of each other's work. Um, places that uh, that you can go to find out more about the community, you should start with the Algorithmic Justice League. Uh, the PBS site for Coded Bias has a bunch of resources. I helped to run something called the Center for Critical Race and Digital Studies at NYU, uh, which is uh, an academic uh, academic kind of think and do tank uh, where we work on digital studies as it intersects with race. Uh, there's also a new field called public interest technology, uh, which very much intersects with AI ethics. Uh, so if you're the kind of person who is interested in getting a job in civic technology or making technology uh, that helps governments run better or you know helps governments to build vaccine sites that don't crash, for example, uh, public interest technology is the place to go. Uh, and... Uh, what was the other thing I wanted to mention? Um, there's a great reading list uh, that you can compile uh, based on who's in the film. I would also recommend uh, Ruha Benjamin's book, Race After Technology. Um, and of course, uh, you should absolutely read, if you haven't already, uh, read Algorithms of Oppression, read Automating Inequality, read Weapons of Math Destruction, read Twitter and Tear Gas, uh, and maybe also pick up artificial unintelligence. <laughs> While you're at the bookstore. I, I just want to add that all of the books you just mentioned are on the Coded Bias Take Action site, and all of the organizations are also there also if you want to connect to the body of, of knowledge and, and to the community. All right. Um, thanks for that. Uh, Shalini, uh, let, let's come back to sort of the, the, the topic itself. Um, I was curious of when you were doing your work on um, the film, uh, you know, when it comes to the harms associated with the inaccuracy of, uh, of biometric technologies, um, is, was there an example of, um, of the harms done by that that was surprising to you, striking to you, something that is, could maybe illustrate um, for, uh, for the audience um, what exactly is at stake here? Yes, I think um, I have never recovered um, from seeing a 14-year-old child um, being stopped by five plainclothes police officers in the UK. Um, a, a Black British child um, in school uniform, uh, wearing a, a school uniform suit, is uh, accosted by five plainclothes police officers, fingerprinted, held for 10 minutes, um, asked for all kinds of questions, and, it, 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 and did not have any sense of why he had been stopped. And um, it was only because um, I was there following human rights observers and only because I was in the UK where there are laws where this process would be transparent to a journalist or a documentarian that I could actually capture a moment like that in camera. 
And I think I, I maybe watched the scene 200 times in the editing room. And every time I watched it, that even talking about it, the, the hand, you know, my, I, I get goosebumps because it's a moment where you see a child being traumatized um, by technology. And I live in New York where we had stop and frisk and um, it was just incredibly emotional. And I think uh, there's also that moment in the film where you see a UK citizen just going about their day and trying to avoid um, the, the real-time facial recognition cameras by UK police who were trialing this technology at the time and pulls his um, scarf up over his face and um, is, is ticketed. And I sort of use the parallel of South Africa, apartheid South Africa, to remind us all that in a democracy, um, police aren't supposed to be able to arbitrarily stop us on the street like that. Um, that's not supposed to happen in a free society. And I think in those moments, um, which are still very incredible, are still incredibly chilling to me, even when I watch them after so many um, after so many times watching them, um, because I literally saw the moment where these technologies um, overstep into our civil rights and civil liberties. And I literally saw it happen in front of me. And I think what is so terrifying to me about Joy's discovery of racial bias is that this was not a technology that was being beta tested on a shelf or on a, in a lab somewhere. This is technology um, that was actively being sold to the FBI, actively being sold to ICE or immigration officials, um, actively sold and deployed most times in secret by police departments all across the country with no one that we elected um, in a, no one that essentially represents we the people giving any government oversight in how these technologies um, should be used. And I think um, that was chilling that we have big tech selling directly to law enforcement with no rules in place. Um, and, and that's where, where my fear is, is when democracies pick up the tools of authoritarian states without any kind of policy or democratic rules in place that would protect citizens' rights. Yeah. I absolutely agree. Something else I find horrifying about it is that we spend so much money on this technology and it doesn't work. It has never worked. Uh, and people keep saying, oh, well, it's a little better now. We just made it a little bit better. And it's it's just, it's a fool's errand. Like people have this fantasy that we're going to be able to put cameras everywhere and going to be able to connect computers to the cameras and the computers are going to make these objective, unbiased decisions that are going to get us away from the essential problems of being human. And it's an absurd notion. And it's been with us for centuries, for generations, and it has never worked. It's never going to work. We're never going to be able to automate our our way out of being human. So it's just a waste. We'll be back with more after this message. Ready to take your travels to the next level? Alaska Airlines is committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and everything in between. 
Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. All right, and this is really the nitty-gritty. I mean, this is where it gets really kind of complex to try to sort of parse and understand um, uh, what the issues are and what the solutions are, I think. So I'm going to ask a few questions that sort of uh, navigate this terrain. And the first one is based on something um, that uh, Kathy O'Neill said, which um, uh, you mentioned her earlier, um, uh, the author of uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, um, really brilliant thinker. Um, and she says the underlying mathematical structure isn't racist or sexist, but the data embeds the past, which is what you said earlier, Meredith. And my question is, if algorithms rely on the past, which is a part of their, you know, um, what they are, how can we build them to avoid the evils in that past? How is it even possible? I mean, Meredith. it's not. It's not possible in some cases. Uh, people imagine that it would be, but it's simply not. Uh, one of the things that, uh, so you're right, Kathy writes about this a lot. Uh, Joy says in the film that the past dwells in the data. So the way that machine learning algorithms work is uh, you take a whole bunch of data about the world as it is, and you use this data in order to construct a model to make predictions about how things uh, will be or should be in the future. Uh, but the problem is that when you're taking data about the past, that data reflects all of the sins of the past. So if you're trying to use data to construct a model to decide who gets a mortgage, well, you are including all of the historical data about racist housing policy, about redlining. Uh, and you're saying, okay, only the rich people who uh, have had mortgages in the past should be able to have mortgages in the future. And that's not the world we want. We want a world where there is economic mobility. We want a world where uh, you know, where you can change, where you can grow, where you can have a future. Uh, that's the American dream, right? And so imagining that computers, which are just machines for doing math, imagining that computers can do things that they can't is a recipe for disaster. Uh, one of the things that I write about is an idea that I call techno-chauvinism. The idea that comp computers or computational solutions are superior to others. Uh, and techno-chauvinists say things like, oh, computers are more unbiased or are more objective than humans and therefore better. And it's not a competition. It's about the right tool for the task. So should we just abandon algorithmic thinking? I mean, is it or, or, or just, uh, you know, put it in its place and just apply it to, to, to places where it feels like it will do no harm. What's the, what's the solution? I mean, it's not, it's not reasonable to say, oh, we should not use computers. Like that would be crazy. <laughs> computers are great. Uh, I, 
I write a lot of code. I build uh, I build AI tools for investigative reporting is what I do in my academic research. Uh, and computers are great. We should use computers for the things that computers are good for, and we should not use computers for the things that computers are bad at. And when it is clear that computational decisions are racist or sexist or ableist or ageist, we especially should not use computers then. So this, I think, um, speaks to uh, this other thing in the documentary, which is that there's the inaccuracy, but then also there's the way that the technology is employed um, and what it's intended for. Um, you know, uh, there are examples of um, targeted advertising, uh, credit scoring in China, creating a kind of caste system there, and um, uh, biometric technologies being used um, to surveil people living in certain communities. Um, you know, these are these are benefiting some people while trapping or even targeting other people, and so. I came away from the documentary just wondering, you know, a lot, there's a, there's a part of the documentary that's focused on improving the efficiency of these technologies um, so that there is sort of equal recognition of all people. Uh, but the question that's hanging out there for me is if we are perfecting that technology, aren't we just creating a more efficient tool of oppression? I think you're right about that. Uh, I think that there's there's a few things. I think uh, Silicon Valley has a radical um, exclusion problem, and um, you know there's the, the gaze of technology. It, it, I'm a filmmaker, so we're sort of used to talking about the white male gaze in cinema or in filmmaking. Or um, you you had uh, campaigns around the Oscars that sort of highlighted that. But I, I do think there's only one, that's only one issue that we're dealing with, with these technologies. And I think that often when I speak to technologists, they just say, oh, you just had bad data. You know, we can just fix the data and it'll, everything will be perfect. And I think where I differ and um, why I'm so grateful to people like Meredith Broussard for giving me an education, because I think some of this has to do with our own literacy as a society and the fact that, you know, your 10 year old is going to start using these technologies and we don't actually really understand how they work and what they can do and what they can't do. Um, but I think for me as a filmmaker, um, one of the things I tried to highlight in the film is that it's really not about building the perfect algorithm. It's about building a more humane society. And I think, um, you know, what Meredith Broussard's uh, book, Artificial Intelligence, points out so well is that we've been sold a bag of tricks about um, this idea of the solutionism, this great white knight of technology that's going to perpetually save us from every problem that we have. And sometimes the, the best solution is actually a more human one. And so what I hope Coded Bias um, does is help reframe the conversation around is our goal to be as efficient as possible because we all have that moment like in China where 
we're like, wow, I could buy a candy bar with my face. You know, that's really cool. How efficient. Um, I could pay for dinner with my face. Um, I don't have to think about who I can make friends with. I can just look up how many Instagram followers they have. Um, that sort of algorithmic obedience training that Kathy O'Neill talks about. But I think to me, part of it is about the way that we're using technology and how we build a more human-centered society where the tech is in service of human beings and not the other way around. Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought up China because this is you know, something that I also wanted to, to ask you about. So the documentary takes us to China. We follow uh, a young woman as she goes about her day, um, as you said, uh, using her face to, to purchase things, to um, get on the subway. Um, uh, talking about credit scoring and um, and the way that it helps her to uh, decide who's worth being friends with. Um, and at the end of it, it is, a, it is such a surprising part of the film because I think that the expectation is that uh, you're going to tell a story like that and then there's going to be some big payoff that shows how horrible it is. But really, the subject that you're following really likes it. Um, it's very convenient. Um, it, it's something. It is a world within which she moves smoothly and um, and uh, and and finds to be very satisfying. And it is really. I mean, it's brave filmmaking to have that in there and let it sit with the viewer and not um, be heavy-handed about telling the viewer what to think about it. And so I have to ask this question, which is uh, that that example sets, which is that. Um, is it really so bad? I mean, is it possible that there could be a future where we are as happy as um, as the woman you followed in China is? Um, where uh, could we all love Big Brother? <laughs> yeah, could we all love Big Brother? Could we all love Big Brother? <laughs> well, I I think uh, that that it was a very it was I think that vignette is sort of a dark uh, mirror episode inside of the documentary. I think it's important to point out that, um, it, you know, China doesn't have freedom of press and I would have endangered someone. It would have been dangerous for someone to speak up against um, the social credit score. Um, we didn't. Uh, what she said was exactly what she said. I was as surprised we were in the edit room. I didn't get real time. Um, we we didn't I didn't get real time translation. And so it wasn't until editing months later that I actually got the translation. And my editor and I were all like wide-eyed, like we couldn't believe, um, you know, especially because she looks sort of counterculture and she's a skateboarder. And at the same time, I thought it was so important to represent because we want to think that that's a galaxy far, far away, you know? But I think that that young woman is actually a reflection of ourselves. We all have that moment where like, I'm going to press a button and a car is going to come and I'm not going to think about labor rights of what happens to that driver if his score falls behind or her score falls behind um, a four point something, which is when they throw you off the platform, this black box algorithm throws you off the platform. And I think when she talks about I don't need to judge anyone. I can save so much time about who my friends are based on this social credit score. Well, 
how often have we judged someone based on how many Instagram followers they have or how many likes they got on something and the way in which um, Kathy O'Neill says so poignant in the film, she calls it algorithmic obedience training mm -hmm. and the way that we are being um, trained um, by these systems. Um, and I think um, if, if there's one thing on the, on the cutting room floor that I agonized and agonized about, it is Meredith explaining um, that these algorithmic systems are based on popularity and what is popular is not always good. And so to me, that that China episode is um, that sort of vignette within the documentary is, is just such a reflection of where we are as democratic societies with this technology, that we're on the precipice of that and we're sliding into it without even knowing. There's, there's a sense of inevitability to kind of where, where we're headed when it comes to algorithms, that this is just a, you know, that this train is not stopping, that we are going to continue to become more and more um, uh, immersed in, um, in this technology. And yet this documentary shows people fighting um, and fighting in a lot of different ways. I mean, I think that was actually one of the thing that's, things that's really interesting here is that you have um, Big Brother Watch, which is doing some real, like almost direct action kind of um, uh, activism. Um, and then you have Joy, who is really connecting a larger um, population to this issue by uh, using um, creative means. I mean, her spoken word poetry and then even the, um, the algorithm, algorithmic justice league. I mean, they're these very sort of pop culture ways of connecting. And I was just curious, what are you seeing that gives you hope that we will be able to reverse course here and not end up in, um, in a worse place than we are right now. And I, I'd like to start with Meredith and then Shalini, if you could close that out, that'd be great. Well, Mark, I'm gonna disagree with you a little bit. Okay. I don't at all think that it's inevitable that algorithms are going to take over. Uh, one of the things that I care a lot about is uh, empowering people around technology building computational literacy so that people feel empowered to push back, to fight back. Uh, we do not have to close our eyes and think of England when it comes to technology. We can speak up in a democracy and say, no, we do not want uh, you know, racist uh, facial recognition algorithms used at our airports. Uh, and in the wake of Joy's work, uh, there have been several important steps. Uh, cities like, uh, I always have to write this down, oh, Berkeley and Oakland and Somerville and Brookline and Northampton and Cambridge have all banned use of facial recognition technology by police. Uh, in the wake of Joy's work, uh, the big tech companies announced that they were uh, putting a pause or stopping entirely selling facial recognition technology to police or developing it for police. Uh, we can stop the, uh, we can stop the train and we have the power in our hands 
uh, to course correct. We do not need to be prisoners of the past. Uh, so I think that for many years, uh, we were sold a bill of goods around technology. We were told, oh, it's too hard. Technology is too hard for you to understand. You should just uh, buy this thing and it's going to make your life easier and seamless and don't think too hard about it. And that's just marketing. And we don't have to believe it. You know, uh, technology is a little bit hard. Like, it's true. It's a little bit hard. Uh, what computers do is math. And I mean, it's really hard to explain a sound in a sound bite, honestly. Like, I'm a professor, I teach people things for a living, and I'm going to be totally honest with you that no, it's not really easy to understand what's going on in artificial intelligence. Uh, but it is not impossible. It just takes like a little bit of working at it. And then you understand it. And then you can see, oh, wait, we don't have to be controlled by the decisions that were made in the past. We can forge a new future. Uh, but in order to do that, we do need to push back against techno chauvinism. Uh, people do need to educate themselves, empower themselves. And we also need policy changes and we need regulation. So it's not enough for individuals to you know, wear makeup, for example, that defeats facial recognition technologies. Uh, we need changes at the policy level. We need structural changes uh, so that the situation is fixed for everybody all at the same time, as opposed to just relying on individual efforts. Delany? Well, I'm going to take it full circle with your 1984 re reference. Um, uh, Aldous Huxley, author of Brave New World, another sci-fi writer, uh, wrote a book, to, wrote a letter to um, uh, George Orwell, 1984, and says, uh, you know, I really enjoyed your book, but in the future, I don't think people are going to be oppressed by by stick and by by stone. You know, that that people will learn to love their own oppressor. And so I think that is the tricky world that we're in, uh, where we have learned to love Big Brother in that particular way, um, and, th and that we are freely offering um, our, 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 our um, identities up to, to corporations and to, to, you know, in our data up to these corporations. And you're right, in, in this pandemic, uh, we've become even more hyper-reliant on these technologies, and we've seen big tech uh, make even more money, <laughs> um, with Jeff Bezos on track to be the world's first trillionaire, which I think should be illegal, but that's that is on track to happen. So you are right. Uh, there, there are some sobering facts about this. And we are right now living in an age where it's like the automobile before you had seatbelt laws and a car seat for your baby. It, it's like cigarettes before we had labels on them and, and pharmaceuticals with no, um, with no ingredients listed and no usage indications. And I think that's what we're, we're living with with AI. That being said, I make documentaries because it reminds me um, that everyday people change the world. And I'm saying that in a very pragmatic, unromantic way. Um, documentaries remind me that everyone who is a superhero doesn't um, always wear a cape. And I, I've seen that in the making of this film. And 
I just want to say that I've seen a recipe for social change where um, I really believe that we have a moonshot moment, that the cement is not dry in these technologies to call for ethics in the in the you know AI technologies that will define our future. And in the making of this film, I have seen sea change that I never thought possible um, with what Meredith was referring to, where you have IBM essentially disrupting their whole business model, saying we're stopping all research of facial recognition. You have Microsoft saying we'll stop selling it to law enforcement and Amazon putting a one-year pause, which is up in a couple of months. Um, all of that happened in June, 2020. And I think that timeline is particularly important because I think that the recipe is that we need uh, brave scientists like Joy Bellamwini and Kathy O'Neill and Timnit Gebru and Deborah Raji, who put their academic reputations on the line and are often um, dismissed or attacked by big tech before they're believed. Uh, but we need those brave scientists who are unencumbered by corporate interest to tell the truth. And then we need hopefully science communicators like Meredith Broussard. I hope the film played a small role. Uh, we've seen with COVID and with climate change, we have big problems to solve and we need literacy. Um, from the age children start using these texts, we should have some basic literacy around how people can question them. But I think June 2020 was important because, um, you know, the research had been out for for almost two years when the big tech companies made this decision. And what was significant about June 2020 is we had the largest movement for civil rights and equality that we've seen in 50 years um, around the unjust murder of George Floyd um, by law enforcement. And what happened is people were making the, the connections between uh, racially biased surveillance, invasive surveillance technology in the hands of law enforcement and the inherent value of black life and the communities that are most vulnerable to its impacts. And to me, that is the recipe of how we make change. Uh, we need um, brave scientists, we need science communicators. And we've seen for the last years that um, we, the people of a democracy, um, this is not the time to be asleep at the wheel, that we need to participate in public policy um, and in governance. And that means local change, like Meredith was saying. Um, when we make local change, when we support some of the people that are on the Coded Bias website to make change, we disrupt the ubiquitous stronghold that big tech has on our society. And we make it more inconvenient for them to have ubiquitous power. And you saw it with Europe passing legislation, some of us as Americans got rights around Cambridge Analytica because our data transited Europe. And people don't, big tech doesn't want to do one policy for California and one for the 49 states. And so the more that we can act and push for local policy, the more we can disrupt this uh, ubiquitous tech. So I really believe we have a moonshot moment and um, that the future is really a script that, that we're all writing together. Um, well, let's uh, actually, first reader question, I think will follow on that really well. Um, it's from Matt Monobianco. Matt says, toward the end of the movie, Joy and several others testify before Congress. This seems to have created a heightened awareness of the issues and dilemmas. Afterwards, there is a comment that there is still no U.S. federal legislation guidelines establishing guardrails. Can you speak to what has happened, is happening since the film was finished yes. in the United States? Yes. Um, 
Well, that, that was an incredible moment because we saw Jim Jordan, right wing uh, Trump supporting Republican from Ohio, agree with left wing AOC from Queens, uh, Democratic. Uh, and and they both agreed. And I saw both sides as something we don't see on television, which I saw bipartisan support uh, for something. And I think we lost a lot when we lost Elijah Cummings. Uh, there was supposed to be a bill on the table out of that uh, committee that never happened because we lost Elijah Cummings. Um, and so uh, there was, there is some federal law. None of the advocates I've talked to have very much hope that will pass federal policy. So I think right now our biggest hope is at the state and local level. Hmm. So uh, another question about what What's being done? What can be done? Uh, Mary McLaughlin uh, from Seattle asks, I use the dropout, rebellious, do not want to participate strategy. It is not that successful. What should I do? How do we empower ourselves democratically? So what can people do on an individual basis? Meredith? Well, I think it's about individual action and uh, action at the policy level. Um, there, uh, there is the facial recognition and biometric technology moratorium act. There is the algorithmic accountability act. Uh, there are, like, there is legislation being proposed. Uh, it is not necessarily passing, but it is being proposed. Uh, so we can work to get these kinds of laws and policies passed so that, as Shalini said, the changes I uh, percolate through the system. Uh, California has a data privacy act now, and all of us benefit from that because the developers are, you know, it's just too complicated to make something work for individual states. So we're all benefiting from GDPR being passed in Europe, from the California data privacy act being passed. Uh, so let's pass more of these things. Uh, find the place where it feels right for you to be an activist around technology issues and just push really hard on that. Uh, the ACLU of Massachusetts was very much responsible for getting the uh, facial recognition ban passed in Cambridge and Somerville. Uh, so check out the ACLU, check out uh, all of the resources on the Coded Bias website. Uh, and find the place that resonates for you and, you know, start speaking up. Mm. Um, all right. I've got a question here from Stanley Shikuma, and I want to kind of add on to this, but Stanley says, I've heard that companies are trying to improve facial recognition so it can recognize people even with a mask on and to also assess people's emotions. Is this true? And what are the implications? And what I want to add to this is just um, at risk of, of ending uh, this conversation on a dark note, what are the things, what are the developments? You talked about the things that are making you hopeful. What are the things that are deepening your concern? Are there new technologies? Are there new um, developments in how it's being used that, um, that, that you think that people should know about? Uh, Shalini? Uh, well, I'll defer to Meredith because Meredith is who who scolded me about so much so much of this technology. But I will say that um, yes, these cameras are learning to identify us with our uh, masks on, and um, I am quite concerned. And I've learned through um, amazing researchers like Meredith Broussard that 
any technology that says it can sort of read our emotions. And, you know, there's there's a, a company called HireVue that says it can judge if you're going to be a good candidate by your um, by your facial expressions, that that's actually pseudoscience. And so I think one of the things that I feel so grateful for to the cast of the film is giving me an education. And I don't want to um, underestimate the power of literacy um, in terms of understanding. It's only because I sat with such brilliant uh, human beings that I am now able to say, oh, that's pseudoscience. That's not really science. They can't really do that stuff. That's like, um, that's techno chauvinism. They're just making this stuff up. And it's only because I educated myself that I could start to have those moments. And, you know, I, I just want to say, um, um, and, I, and I'll let Meredith talk about what she's uh, discerned about, that you had people like Trine Moran and um, Icy May Downs of Brooklyn who didn't even know what biometric data was. And I think a lot of us feel like imposters, like we uh, don't have a place in questioning these technologies because we don't have advanced degrees. And it's really my hope that Coded Bias um, pulls out a chair for us and, and lets us know we all have a place at the table in uh, because those these all of these technologies are deployed on all of us. And so um, it, it's just my hope that we'll all get literate and so we can discern for ourselves what is science and what is pseudoscience. I love that vision, Jelani. Uh, I would love for everybody to be so much more computationally literate and to just say no to garbage science, to junk science when it's embedded in computation. Uh, so yes, computers are getting better at recognizing us with our masks on. Uh, that is different than emotion detection. And emotion detection is just garbage. Uh, there is a very old uh, pseudoscience that is also garbage called phrenology. And the Nazis were very into phrenology. And what phrenology had to do with was measuring people's skulls and, uh, and making conjectures about their, uh, about their like fitness or validity or intelligence based on skull measurements. And it's absolute garbage. It's like worse than patent medicine. It's pseudoscience. It is not worth any kind of intellect. It is the most anti-intellectual thing you can possibly imagine. And emotion detection is computational phrenology. Emotion detection by computers is not a real thing. Uh, also, uh, the computers that claim to be able to uh, tell if somebody is gay or straight from looking at a picture, that's also not a real thing. Uh, there is a lot of junk science out there. There are a lot of claims about what computers can do that are just entirely false. So be really critical when you hear these claims in the future and know that there are always limits to what computers can do in the same way that there's limits to what we can do with math. Uh, and feel free to be critical, feel empowered to be critical about these things. Well, that seems like a good note to end on. Shalini and Meredith, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Shalini and Meredith for the chat. 
And thanks also to the folks in the audience for their questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, including the CrossCut Festival, which is coming in May, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph, and the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. And Anne Krisnovich and Mo Klaub managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.